Welcome to episode five of For the Defense. This week we have H.T. Smith, and H.T. is such an incredible and inspirational criminal defense lawyer. He's been around for a long time. He's got so many great stories. He teaches also at FIU Law School, and you're going to hear about a gruesome case and why someone like H.T. would take on a case like this and fight so hard to save a man's life in For the Defense. All right. It's my real treat to be here today with H.T. Smith. Um, And it's a real treat because he's the real deal. He's a criminal defense lawyer. He's an activist. He's a director of the trial advocacy program at FIU. And and let me tell you a little about him because he was the first African-American public defender here in Miami, the first African-American assistant county attorney. The first uh, Black-owned law firm was H.T. Smith's law firm in downtown Miami. So um, he is a wonderful, wonderful lawyer. And we're going to talk today about a case where he represented a man named Arthur Livingston. And and this was back in the mid-1980s, a different time in Miami, right, H.T.? Oh, absolutely. This is uh, right around the time that uh, drugs began to uh, proliferate in Miami and criminal defense lawyers were uh, battling uh, uh, not only for their clients, but, you know, the, the police and the courts and every, they were after us, too. So this was a what I call the golden era for criminal defense lawyers in, in South Florida. And, and had you how long had you been in private practice when you got the call from Livingston? Uh, it's four years. OK. And, and, you know, I imagine as a public defender and, and I don't know, in private practice, had you handled first degree murder cases before? Yes, I had handled first degree murder cases in the public defender's office. And I had handled a couple of first degree murder cases as, in private practice, one of which uh, went to trial and it was the verdict was reduced to second and the other one pled. But I had never been involved. And those were as first chair. And I had been involved in some cases in the public defender's office, second chair, preparing me to be first chair lawyer. But in none of the cases had I experienced the client being sentenced to death uh, and being on death row. And in this particular case that we're going to talk about today, uh, the most jarring experience other than these horrible facts was visiting my client on death row. I can hear the cell uh, doors now. It's... uh, still send chills down my spine. So how did you get involved in this case? What was the call that you received and how did you get involved in it? I received a call from my father. My father was one of the first uh, black people who were promoted as supervisors in the, uh, in the postal service. And one of the people he worked with was uh, Arthur Aubrey Livingston's father. And the father uh, advised uh, my father of, of the situation his son was in, and my father began to brag about his son and et cetera. And you, you know that he went to to uh, to law school to represent the downtrodden and to fight the government, and he did it in the public defender's office, and that's what he's dedicated to now. And uh, you know you'll have a fight with my son. <laughs> So he called me and the very first thing he said was, now they don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> That's never what you want to hear when you're in private practice. But they're dear friends of mine. I said, well, dad, you know, you know, the, 
the that's what the public defender's office for. No, I don't want them to have a public defender. You know, the public defender's not going to be able to handle this case. I said, but dad, I was a public defender. <laughs> right. And I was, you know, pretty good. We had one of the best public defender's office in 1975, the best in the country. And uh, yeah, he'll get no, you know, you know, you know, you 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 talk about the fact that you want to uh, uh, be a lawyer to defend uh, tough cases for people who really need you. Well, this is a tough case, and my friend's son needs you. And uh, if you are my son, you won't turn them down. So yeah, you can't say no to that. Can't say no to that. That uh, their whole family wound up over the course of my representation with costs. I, I think at some point. Uh, the client was uh, determined to be indigent for cause, but for two two trials and one appeal to the Florida Supreme Court by myself. I tried the case by myself both times, and I handled the appeal by myself. I sent you a copy of the uh, Supreme Court case. You saw they listed attorney, one attorney. That's me. it. Yep. Uh, yeah. And so uh, $25,000. So Incredible to do a case like that for $25,000. I mean, a first degree murder case, forget about the appeal all the way to the Florida Supreme Court, which we're going to talk about in the second trial, which we're going to talk about. But to do a first degree murder case, I mean, it's basically doing it for free. You did a pro bono. Yeah, exactly. I wanted, But I wanted the family to have some skin in the game. I knew that they would be uh, calling on me a lot. I knew that I would be, and I look, and I, have always made it a practice of visiting my clients in their home. Now, obviously, I visit my client, the actual defendant at the Broward County Jail a lot, but I went to the family's home and we would sit and they would make me some sweet tea and they're bohemian. They can really make up. They made some of the best confitters. So I told them I'm coming. Sometimes, to be honest you, I told them I would come by to get them confitters, especially on like <laughs> Sunday. And, and you know, if a bit, cases like this require trust because there are a lot of key decisions that the clients really don't know. And based upon what they hear in the street or from shade tree lawyers, they really would go against your advice, except if you get them to bond where they trust you. So they say, you know, I know my family is telling me this. My friends are telling me this. I talked to a lawyer who uh, was the lawyer for Burdines. <laughs> he told me that. I talked to my lawyer who wrote my will. He told me I'll do that. But if you say so, Lawyer Smith, we're going to go with you. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that about developing a bond because it's different when you're in private practice than when you're a public defender. It's hard when you're a public defender to develop that bond uh, with a client. They, they come in with such distrust of the public defender. And so when you talk about, you know, having some skin in the game, did, did that help you develop trust with the family? It's counterintuitive that paying you some money would help that, but I, th- I imagine it does. Yeah, oh, yes, it does. I mean, it, they, uh, you know, first of all, you know, my, my, my father and some of my family knew their family, which helped. You know, I really pride myself. You know, I'm, I've never been uh, like the smartest lawyer, but I pride myself in never losing a client because of service. I don't believe that my service is uh, with service. A lot of people uh, try to satisfy the client. My objective is to amaze the client. I want the client to say, you calling me from the, from the airplane? Wow. You actually coming to visit me on Sunday? Wow. As a matter of fact, I almost always visit my clients in jail in the evening 
and you would see very few lawyers were there, except in federal court. You know, right. but over in state court, go over to state court. You know, I'll I'll be a private lawyer and maybe a few public defenders or their investigators. And so that was like, oh, so they go back to the cell and say, your lawyer visit you on Saturday night. They want to see you fighting. They want to see that you're fighting for them and that you're Absolutely. there. And you, the number one thing though is that you care. Right. People will not listen to you until they believe you care. Then the fighting. Now, HT, you were a public defender in Miami, not Broward, and you, your office was in Miami, not Broward. To take a case, you weren't just taking a first-degree murder case in Miami where you knew the judges, you knew the community and everything else. You were going up to a hostile community um, in a case where your client was probably the second most hated man in Broward, second to the uh, co-defendant, who was probably the most hated man in, in Broward. And, and, you know, you were a black lawyer from Miami headed up to Broward. <laughs> Tell us about how you, how you came into the case and how you were viewed up there um, in Broward County, which is a whole different place than Miami. Let, let people know about that. First of all, my client was the number one most hated person because during the investigation, the, the wife of the co-defendant told the police that my client actually pulled the trigger and my client burned the kids up. So it took, you know, all, almost a year for me to unravel that. So my client was public enemy number one. Public enemy number two was not the co-defendant. Po public enemy number two was me. <laughs> Why is that? Because I was raising holy hell fighting for my client. Now, not only was I in Broward where the hostility for Miami lawyers was so bad that the chief judge of Miami met with the chief judge in Broward to complain about how Broward judges were treating Miami lawyers. That's number one. Number two, my case was before the most conservative, the toughest sentencing, the most prosecuted execution audit judge in Broward County, Judge Futch, F-U-C. H. Fudge. He wore as his high-pin handcuffs. Oh my goodness. Every day. He kept a gun on the bench every day. He had a phone where he called the police almost every day during the trial. Uh, highway patrol officer. And so I said, I've got an and I know he was, I don't, you know, I gotta be careful. Let's just say he was not uh, sensitive to the NAACP. <laughs> he, he, let me say, he, <laughs> you couldn't give him free membership in the NAACP. All right. Oh my goodness. So I said, I've got to instigate him to make error in this case. So the very first day I appeared before him, he's down on the phone while I was just standing there and started talking to a, a trooper. And I said, You want to? When you finish, may I speak? He said, yes. I want to make an orate tennis motion. He said, proceed. I said, I, I respectfully move that I be made a good old boy for the purpose of this crowd. <laughs> How did that Every, go over, HT? Everybody in the courtroom howled. He scowled. <laughs> right. And I knew I could push his buttons. And uh, it was on. Now, now. You know, you talk about instigating him to make error. I, I've read a lot of your stuff and, and you talk about, you know, it's important to agitate. 
And yes. we, we just lost a friend uh, who, who talked about making good trouble. Is that, is that what you're, you know, you were talking about with agitation and instigating? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, as I, I like to say, it's the agitator in the washing machine that gets the dirt out. If you want to grow crops, you got to agitate the soil to be able to grow. And so uh, I, I have tried to be an agitator for justice. The system is rigged against blacks and the poor. The system is unfair. And so people will say for judges, there are a few bad apples or for police, there are a few bad apples. That's not true. The problem is that the orchard is rotten. And so if you put a, a, a fantastic person like our friend Roy Black, you make him a federal judge under the sentencing guidelines for uh, uh, crack cocaine. At one time, it was 100 to 1. So he's a good lawyer. He's a good man. But he's got to sentence, sentence that black kid who's charged with the equivalent amount of crack cocaine to power cocaine 100 times more than a white kid, same age, same quantity of cocaine, same record, et cetera. So but HT, I'll take you on. I'll take you on on that because they would never make Roy Black a, a judge because he was a criminal defense lawyer. So they make only former federal prosecutors uh, judges these days. So we don't even get folks, brilliant lawyers like Roy to the bench um, I, I, who, who could fight against the system. Well, you know, because we are, we're trial lawyers, we love this kind of backwards and forwards. And so I can I can tell you they made Kathleen Williams a lawyer, uh, a judge. I saw her in court. I know that her, she's a passionate powerful, persuasive advocate. They made uh, Tan Wilson, my trial partner, a judge in, in state court. They made uh, uh, Stan Blake a judge. They made Mark LeBan a judge. So yes, by and large, uh, they would prefer to have uh, prosecutors, but it doesn't matter. The system is rotten. The, the orchard where all these apples are located is rotten. So that's the problem. So and I agree with you that that we have a real problem with the system. And, and I have, have admired your civil rights work and your criminal defense work. But but this case is an interesting one to to have taken and and one that you wanted to speak about. I gave you a choice of you could speak about any case you wanted to and you wanted to talk about this one. And and in reading about it, H.T., um, the facts are, are grisly. I mean, the, the murder of, of uh, five people, a couple of small children. And so, you know, other than your dad asking you to take the case, was it just because you wanted to fight for the underdog? You're willing to fight for the system. People don't understand why criminal defense lawyers take a case like this one. And, and maybe you could tell us a little about the case uh, first and then why you took it. Well, first of all, in terms of the facts, uh, in addition to there being a woman who was killed, she was pregnant. So that's one. Her husband was killed, shot. The boyfriend of of uh, of the late of the co-defendant's wife was shot and killed, and then two kids were burned alive. Uh, the, doc, the medical examiner said the smoke inhalation uh, killed them, but they both had on Mickey Mouse watches, and they stopped at about the same time. That was what the medical examiner told me off the record was the way he determined cause of death because both watches stopped at the same time. So these were grisly facts. Man, those are some grisly, brutal facts. You'll hear how H.T. Smith 
defends such a case in For the Defense next. The most common question that a criminal defense lawyer gets is, how could you represent those people? And criminal defense lawyers have all different responses to that question. Some say everybody deserves a defense. The government is too powerful. They're overreaching. Uh, how about the Constitution, the presumption of innocence? It's good to represent the underdog. Some criminal defense lawyers just like to be able to tell good dinner stories. But you'll hear from H.T. Smith next about why he took on this case with such a difficult set of facts. And I think you'll hear the essence of a real criminal defense lawyer. This is For the Defense. So uh, when I got, I took the case because of the fact that I really believe uh, in trying to make the government and America live up to its ideals, you know, that you're innocent until proven guilty, number one. But number two, after I got into the case, I really was convinced that my client did not kill these people. And so while he was guilty of being an accomplice in the worst homicide in the history of Broward County till that date, and that date, that was the worst homicide ever in Broward County. I believe that he did not deserve to die because he had not killed someone. And once I came to that conclusion, I made a commitment that they would have to come through me to get to him. And uh, I, I want to talk to you about that, because one of the things I think as a criminal defense lawyer in trying to persuade a jury is you really have to believe yourself in the position you're taking. If you can't sell the jury uh, that you believe you're going to lose pretty quick. And and so as you're preparing for your opening HT and, and getting ready for this trial, first of all, were, were you going to be sitting next to the co-defendant or were you severed out? No. Yeah, we was. That was another good, good thing for us. We were severed out and, and we went first. And I think they wanted us to go first, figured they get a conviction for our guy and then have our guy testify against their guy. So we went first and, uh, the prosecutor was uh, was not the most ethical uh, prosecutor that they had up there. He would do anything to win. And so I was defending alone without a second chair. I'll never do that again, though. And, and well, the reason I did it alone was because I, was, I only had $25,000 for myself. And I just would not go to a friend of mine. I'm sure I could have gotten another lawyer to do it. But I just thought that was unfair. And I didn't know how long we were going to be involved. And so uh, once I got committed to the case, to the fact that according to what you, America, and you, the state of Florida, says, this law should be when this and, and on whom this law should be applied, my client does not deserve the ultimate punishment of death. You want him, you come to me. You come through me if you're going to get him. And I'm prepared to take on the prosecutor and the judge every day. My life was threatened. I'm, I know this sounds like an exaggeration. Every day of the trial, of the first trial. And, and it was threatened um, because your client was so hated. Yes, my client was so hated. And uh, the courtroom was, you know, you five people dead. The, court, the, the, the courtroom was full, full of the family and friends of the victims. Sure. And so... You know, I would walk in court. I mean, and, and by the way, the police did. Broward Sheriff did a good job of protecting me. 
You know, I would come there. I don't know if you remember. Now, this is 1980. There were no cell phones. You remember the big brick phone? Of course. But at the time, almost all of them were reserved for doctors. But they gave me one. I found out it cost me $1,800. And so I would come to the courthouse. I would call up. They would come down and escort me from the, the parking lot up to the courtroom. And while they were walking me in, they could hear people saying, you know, kill you or whatever it was. And so it was, and so I could not, the one place I could never go by myself was the bathroom, the men's room. <laughs> they say, whatever you do, don't go to the men's room. So, so who went to the bathroom with you? Uh, one of the, uh, the, 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 one of the BSO people. No you know, way. Up in Broward, you know, like we have bailiffs. BSO is sort of like the bailiff up there as well. So they always went with me to the bathroom. And your client's in custody, so he's safe. It's you that's on the chopping block. <laughs> yes, he, he, like, I was in more danger for representing the, the, the defendant than the defendant was, because you know they would just take him in the back and stuff. But, so by the way, was, back in 1975, before when you were a PD, how much were you making as a public defender back in those days? I, I think I got a, a big raise up to like 14.5. Right. Well, out, man, I was like in. High cotton. This was, I was a big time. <laughs> all right. So you're getting ready for your opening statement. You're, you're getting all these threats. You're hated by the community, by the judge, by the prosecutor. The only guy and, and people who like you is, the, is your client and the, and the family. And I guess your dad for supporting them. So by the way, my dad didn't come up for the trial. Not one day. <laughs> I was really upset with him. I bet. I bet. And and so so tell me the strategy for opening. You can't talk about the death penalty in opening. Are, are you talking, are you saying that your client's innocent of the whole thing? Or do you admit that no. he was there and, and concede those things? Right. Um, so tell me the strategy. All these bad, these people are dead. These people were killed. My client did not pull the trigger. My client did not pour the gasoline. My client did not like the Mets. My client was not even at the car at the time that the co-defendant, without any notice to my client, committed these dastardly acts on the spur of the moment. And that is not, in the, and I gave him a jury instruction. I mean, basically, I'm telling you, that's, those are my first words. In other words, it wasn't like, uh, you're here, this is an opening statement, and what I say is not evidence, not in that I, right off from the bat, it's true that this these people were killed. It's true that uh, shot, shot, shot. It's true this woman was pregnant. It's true these kids were back there. It's true the fire was started, but my client had, had, had no idea that this man was going to do what he was. And he wasn't present where it happened. And he had no notice whatsoever. He never saw a gun anytime so that night. HT, you talk about an opening not getting up there and saying, you know, the evidence is going to show and being conservative and things like this and coming out and and really punching an opening. Um, how how important is it to do that in, in not just a case like this, but in all cases to show that you uh, are going to command the courtroom like that? Yeah, it well, the, the, the doctrine, as you know, is called primacy. You know, the, the jurors have gotten a little take a little tidbits here and there in in jury selection, you know, as you test uh, uh, their biases on certain kinds of issues. So they know this has got to do something with something with uh, with guns. It's going to do something with 
pregnancy has got to do something with kid, kids and something about US 27. Have you ever been up? You know, so they get an idea, but they don't see the picture. Now you must, and when you start your opening statement, you have the jurors as interested as they're going to be in the case now. And you cannot waste that moment. And so the number one thing that gets people's attention is, and National Enquirer knows it better than anybody, it's curiosity. And that's why people, people say, even they'll say, uh, Elvis Presley married a Martian or something. It's curiosity. People open it to read about it. And so you got to start off by getting the jurors' attention, number one. But number two, good lawyers tell jurors what happened and how it happened. The best lawyers allow the jury to experience it. And the only way jurors can experience it, you see, only, there's only one way a jury can experience it. When I say one way, one, you got to tell the story about what happened in the first person. I mean, sorry, I always say that in the present tense, because if it's in the past tense, it's like a, a you're reporting on it. Someone can't cannot experience things that you're reporting on. That's why the the, the George Floyd uh, murder affected people around the globe because they experienced it. They lived it. They, that's right. And you know what? And they felt it. They felt it. That night, I don't. I couldn't go to sleep. I, I honestly, I you know, I do this for a living. Look at this case right here. I could not go to sleep that night. I experienced that sadistic suffocation of another human being begging for his dead mother to help him. And I'll be honest with you, I cried. Yeah. And so for this case, I told them all the things that 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 were conceded. You know what I mean? And say, okay, this is what we're fighting about. And then I began to unravel the story in the present tense. So let me ask you about the story for a second, because it, it was your client, Arthur Livingston's co-defendant. Um, he, he became jealous that his wife was cheating on him. Right. And and she, she what? She was living with some other people and, and, and go yes. ahead, tell us. Yeah, no, she went, she left, she left him. He was very abusive. She left him. She already had a boyfriend. But what happened was she left him and she was actually living with the boyfriend in the home of the husband and wife who had these two kids with them. And he was going around. He Jackson, the co-defendant, was going around the neighborhood knocking on doors. You see my wife? You see my wife? And somebody told him, well, I think I saw her at this home. So he knew that there were at least two men there and maybe three. So he went to get my client, sort of like backup. I'm going to get my wife. And so my client was the driver, drove over there. Jackson went, knocked on, knocked on the door and pushed his way in. They, they kept saying, your wife is not here. Your wife is not here. He went into the bedroom and opened, <laughs> and opened the closet door. And there she was. And he went berserk. And so she she ended up being one of the state's main witnesses, no? Yes. Oh, yes. And, and, and yes, main witness. And, 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 and how do you prepare for someone like her? Because I imagine she gets on the stand and she, she's been abused by this guy. 
um, she was there that night and sees what happens. Um, what's the cross of, of her? Yeah, well, there, there were several key things. The first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to have her to validate Patsy Roebuck, even though I had not found her. You know, we were looking, we were looking for her every day. Patsy Roebuck was her friend that she told the truth to. And what did she tell? Her, what did she tell her friend so that we all know? Yes, right. She, the 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 wife told Patsy Roebuck that, in other words, they were sitting watching television a few days after the murder because her husband would not allow her to leave the house. And this particular day, he had her friend come over. And he asked her friend, Patsy Roebuck, to watch her while he went off for a while. While they was there watching television, uh, a news flash came on about this horrible, grisly murder of a pregnant woman, two men, and two little kids. And the wife started crying. And Patsy Roebuck, her friend, started asking her why she's crying. And she said, Douglas did that. Her husband, Douglas, did that. And she said, what? And she began to ask her. And Patsy, I mean, the wife told Patsy Roebuck the truth about what happened. That her husband, you know, how he, the, the Patsy Roebuck knew about him beating her and being so jealous and being crazy with poor uh, sugar in a gas tank and cut the tires so she couldn't go to work. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. So one I wanted to establish through her how wild and crazy he was and that he was capable of doing that, because that's what we were saying. Two, I wanted to establish uh, that Patsy Roebuck was a good person, a loyal friend, a truth teller, just in case we were able to find her. Because the wife, her story had changed from the time that she told Patsy Roebuck about it. Is that what happened? Yes. So, so what did she say Patsy, about your client? What did she say so about your client? When the police, she, basically, she said that my client did, she just switched the roles. And so ah. she said that once they were taken into the truck, it was my client who got the gun and went to the, uh, the car and put the people in the car. It was my client who shot the pregnant woman, shot the boyfriend, and shot the pregnant woman's wife. It was my, my uh, client who went, came back to the truck this is one of those trucks where, you know, like like our Confederate friend put the uh, the gun in, in rack and you can look, you can turn around and look through the back window of the truck. And you can have a gun rack in it and look back. And so she's saying she's seeing it that way. She saw him come back to the truck, get the gas tank and go back. And then she saw a flame because she said she couldn't see whether he struck the metal. Well, all of that is what her husband did. But she, she had time before the police talked to her to think about the fact that, one, one she was ter terrified of him. And two, she didn't want her children to be orphans. I mean, not that's often to be without a father. Sure. So she just flipped the script. And, dis and then Patsy Roebuck disappeared. And so you're desperately trying to find Patsy Roebuck. You don't have uh, a lot of help out there. It's just you. Um, and the reason you want to find this woman is because the wife actually told her who was the shooter, who was the bad guy that night and so on. Right. And so what we were able to get from her in the cross-examination was uh, to, in other words, I took Patsy Roebuck's statement and I matched it 
my cross-examination was to tell Patsy Roebuck's story. In other words, she, and, and, and this happened, right? Yeah, this happened. So I matched her testimony with Patsy Roebuck's story. Now it becomes easy to flip the script. Secondly, was to get her to confirm that Patsy Roebuck was a good person, a good friend, a believable person. I would believe her on a handshake. To second, and thirdly, was to show how, how she was terrorized by her husband. And if he would terrorize her and caught her with another man, it's very easy for people, for people to believe that he would blow and kill these people. Now, now to back up for a second, HT, in, in Miami, it's pretty easy to get a diverse jury and, and lots of different kinds of people on the jury. In Broward, it's, it's, it's a lot wider up there. Um, what, what kind of jury did you have on this case? All white jury. It, this was before Neil. Tell this us about Neil so that we know about it. Yeah, yeah. Neil, it was the case, by the way, argued by my dear friend Jesse McCurry before the Florida Supreme Court that stopped the rampant practice of prosecutors of excluding blacks from jurors. And they, by the way, <laughs> you'd be surprised at how many cases I, was, I tried that there was a black person on the jury that I knew would convict my client and the state would strike them and I would raise holy hell. Just because they were black. Yeah, and because I was black. So I'm black, my client's black, they figure, well, a black guy's gonna quit him. And I'm saying to myself, this guy would convict anybody charged with a crime. And they would strike him and I would raise hell because I had planned for years to really be the lawyer to handle Neil. The best cases I had though, I'm not complaining, I won. As a matter of fact, each time the grand jury met, and it meets twice a year in May and November, I went down and challenged the grand jury. Uh, judge Jerry Weatherington was the chief judge. So it, it, before they swear the jury in, they first started with what we call blue ribbon grand jury. That's big shot. So I got them to stop that. And then when they stopped the blue ribbon. Uh, they should have called it the white ribbon grand jury. It, it was, it, that's right. It was it right. The blue ribbon was the white upper class of, of Miami-Dade County. So uh, Neil was a, a landmark case that stopped the, 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 the indiscriminate uh, striking of black people from juries solely because of the color of their skin. So, so you're about to try this first degree murder case um, with, with your client in Broward County with an all-white jury. I mean, the odds couldn't have been more stacked against you. And what we would call a hangman's judge proudly wearing his handcuffs as his tie pin. Un and buddy, by the way, and butting in in direct examination and butting in uh, in rebuttal of my cross-examination. What, what do you do when the judge butts in? How do, how do you fight that? Well, I would, I would, uh, I would object. Uh, I would ask the judge periodically. I would ask the judge, well, judge, would you be kind enough to ask a question for me, for my side? <laughs> and, oh, man, he, and he would threaten, you know, to hold me in contempt of court. And uh, I learned this from Benny Flynn, uh, Vincent Flynn, a very fine uh, trial lawyer from the public defender's office who's now retired. And so one time I actually did it in front of the judge, uh, in front of the jury. He threatened to hold me in contempt. And I said, well, excuse me, judge, before I ask the next question, I need to know if you're a fining judge or jailing judge. <laughs> you gotta love how HT dealt with a difficult judge. You'll hear how he deals with 
the difficult case next and for the defense. HT mentioned a lawyer named Vincent Flynn. On my first day as a public defender, I was headed to the jail and I met Vinnie Flynn in the line to get in. And Vinnie is a short guy, around 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, He's a true fighter, literally uh, was a boxer before he was a lawyer. And he told me, he said, David, don't do this job to plead people out. You should be trying every case you can, especially as a public defender. And he was right. There is no reason to be a criminal defense lawyer if you're just going to be pleading everything out. And I've always followed Vinny's advice after that. And so I'd like to give him a shout out because on my very first day as a public defender, he was the one who said, fight and go to trial. And so uh, thank you, Vinny. Let's hear what H.T. Smith does to fight this case next in For the Defense. So the wife testifies, you cross-examine her, the state rests. You, you need to find Patsy Roebuck. You haven't found her yet. Well, one of the good things I had that most defense lawyers don't have, uh, and I don't now because he passed away, I had an in-house private detective who worked just for me and was the best employee I have ever had. I say employee, he was like a partner. Uh, and he, he did everything. He was my boat captain. He was my limo driver. He was my uh, office manager. He was my investigator. He was everything. And so all through the trial, I was asking every witness from the lead detective to the person who took uh, photographs of the scene. Have you heard from Patsy Roebuck? <laughs> Have you seen Patsy Roebuck? So the judge at the end of the state's case had the detective to come back to testify of all the actions he had taken, checking with Florida Power and Light, checking with social services, checking with food stamps, checking with uh, Miami-Dade, not Miami-Dade, but the water and sewer. And he just listed all those things. And then the judge gave the jury at that moment, at the time the state rested, a, 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 a jury instruction. You know, basically he said, you know, that the, that basically, now this is not exactly what he said, but, you know, they, it's not their, their duty to get witnesses, but you can tell they've done all these wonderful things. So there's an inference that, that you can't draw an inference that they're hiding the witness as, as, as the defense lawyer wants you to believe. Wow. Unbelievable. So, so you need to find this woman. And so my investigator, I'm home after the state, state rest. I'm exhausted. I don't know how many days or weeks we've been in trial. And uh, I'm going, I know I'm going to rest. I'm not putting the defendant on. That's damn sure. And I didn't have any other witness. I had, the, I had intended to put on some witnesses, but the state, I guess to show off, put on some witnesses that I guess they hadn't thought about, that I was able to get out what I needed to get out. So, and the phone rings and my investigator says, guess who I'm sitting here with? And I said, who? He said, Patsy Roebuck. I said, his name was Solomon Barnes. I said, Barnes, don't joke about it. stuff like that. Said, I'm not joking. And he put on the phone and her voice is very soft and kind of, you could shake you like she was nervous. And I said, where are you? And he told me and I put on uh, uh, some sh a pair of slats and shoes, shirt, got in my car 
and I uh, broke every speeding law in Dade <laughs> County getting to her. And she was in a, upstairs in a, a place that should have been condemned. It was so, it was a horrible place for, for animals to live, let alone human beings. She had two or three children. I don't remember whether it was two or three. And Barnes was sitting with her in her kitchen at a small kitchenette. And I walked in and there was a rat, a big rat, sitting in the kitchen like a member of the family. Wow. Group. And that's, that's exactly what I said. I began to talk to Patsy Roebuck and realized this is a very smart but uneducated young lady who is a truth teller and wants to help but is terrified of Jackson, the co-defendant, to doesn't want to hurt her friend who she now knows has told the opposite story. Right. And, they, and by the way, they were still friends. And three, didn't want to be in the limelight because this was the number one case. It was being, it was on television, radio, and in, in news all day. Thank goodness we did not have social media there. <laughs> right. And so, and then she had nothing to wear. And so now we're supposed to start back up, I think at nine o'clock the next morning. And so I told my investigator, after I talked to her, for a couple of hours, getting all the details, and it was just like we thought, and and uh, it, it just it just flipped the script as to who who did all these bad things and who was present and may have helped him to do the underlying things that made it felony murder, but that he didn't he didn't kill him. My job was to save his life. Sure, and and, and so you get you do, do you buy her clothes? Oh, absolutely. And the problem was, we're supposed to be in court at nine to start. What opens before nine o'clock? What what stores? And so Barnes was able to find. They didn't have like the dollar store and that stuff like that then, but he rode around. He found something would be equivalent to the dollar store owned by one person. You know, the dollar store is a chain, and he got a you know got a nice little outfit, and uh, so we come to court. And he told me, you know, because we don't have a cell phone, but he's calling me from phones and I got this big brick that that, that I'm using for my protection. When I say brick, this big analog phone. And he says, we're here. My heart says, okay. Now I've told the judge before because the state rests and, and, and I have overnight supposedly to discuss with my client whether he's going to testify, but I was trying to give myself one more night to find her, and unbelievable, my, he found her. So the judge expected me to, re to rest the next day. The judge is saying, there's no way he's going to put him on the stand. Are you serious with all this stuff? No way. And so the judge says, okay, defense. And I say, Your Honor, at this time, and I pause. The defense calls Patsy Roebuck. And I mean, you could hear the breath from people all over the courtroom. And wow. all eyes went to the back door. And in she walked. It was, it was one of the most powerful moments of any case I have ever tried. Because all during the trial, from the opening statement, every witness I asked about for Patsy Roebuck, then the judge allowed the detective to come back 
to talk about why it was impossible for him to find her. <laughs> That's great. They had a full police department. So it must have been like here, a movie. It was right, it, exactly. It was a Perry Mason moment, and in walks Patsy Roebuck, and she took the witness stand, and it was. I don't want to be overly dramatic, but it was almost like she was not hypnotized, but like she went back to the event. It was like as she was testifying, it was almost as if she was in the court. Her body was in the court, but but her soul, her mind, her spirit was there. She was testifying it as if it was happening. Happening. I mean, I didn't have to do any leading out. Now I, I had to obviously uh, break it up because you don't want to have just her running on, right? Did the state go after her though? Like, do they oh. do they decide to cross her hard, or what do they do? Oh, oh yes, they did. At, at the beginning, <laughs> they they started that way, and then they realized, oh, this woman is unshakable. Right, right. She was, you know, she was uh, she was a she was frightened of Jackson. She was afraid of feeling like she had double crossed or caused her friend to be in trouble. And she didn't like being in the limelight, but she was strong about being committed to truth. And she was smart enough. You might tell you how smart she was. She was she was just uneducated. Here's a woman, I would bet you that I could have, you know, if we had like she had the money to go to college, she could have been a lawyer, she could have been a doctor, she could she was one of the smartest people I ever met who had was not educated. So HT, this this witness obviously really helps you in terms of the death penalty part of the case, the penalty phase, as we call it. Right. But she still puts your guy there. Right. She still, you know, hurts you on some of the elements of, of, of the case. Right. So the jury ends up going out and, and they say, we send a note. We can't reach a verdict. You must've been shocked by that note. No, no, I wasn't shocked because her, I, 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 I believed that it was gonna be one or two people who were gonna hang or the jury was gonna uh, go over and not hang on not guilty now. In other words, I believe that Patsy, you had to be in that courtroom to feel her. And you know, and that was the last thing they heard. And we had a powerful, you know, at that remember back in those days, uh uh well, you know, don't worry about that. But we had a real powerful closing argument as well. And plus our 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 story was was things that the jury could receive. In other words, we weren't saying he's not guilty. You shouldn't convict him of anything. All right. And so I believe that, in other words, my job is to save his life. I believed that the jury would say this man shouldn't die and it would bleed over into the uh guilt innocent phase on the fact that, well, if I don't want him to die, and I've been seeing what this judge is doing, <laughs> right. this, this, this judge prosecutor is doing, so I figured somebody's going to say, we need to find guilty of second degree murder. I see. And so I expected some, I didn't expect the jury to come, go out, deliberate for a day, and then say, okay, he's guilty. So, so it's Friday afternoon, they send this note that they can't reach a verdict. And, and typically, a judge would say, okay, we'll come back Monday, but you, you, we're going to sequester you for the weekend in a first degree murder case like this. And the judge says, no, I'm going to send you guys home. Uh, and, and you go crazy. I mean, at this point, uh, from, from looking back at the case, I see you, you start jumping up and down. 
Yeah, I, I did everything but stand on the defense table and uh, because I knew what the press was uh, during the trial. And plus, I forgot exactly now what evidence. There was some evidence that was kept out. And I don't know if it was kept out because of emotion. I doubt that. Or kept out because of some decision the state made or whatever. But it was in the in, that evidence was in the public domain because I saw it on the news. And and since this was the number one case, this was a Trayvon Martin case or the or the uh, or or the uh, the the Johnny Cochran case for Broward County. Right. It's just that my client wasn't a celebrity, right? And I think I think. OJ paid a little bit more than <laughs> I was going to say, HT, I and, think he probably did. Right. And, and plus, they had like, you know, five, six, seven lawyers, you know, and it's just me. Other than that, this was the biggest thing in Broward County at the time. So I knew that if, the, if the, they were allowed to go home, the jurors who had already decided guilt, which I figured would be between eight and ten, because I'm looking at the jurors. And I feel there are one or two who are having problems with this. Not that he's innocent, but having problems with a verdict that would make him subjected to the death penalty, realizing that this judge would make the decision. And they were looking for a way, you know, to make sure that he goes to jail for a long time, maybe for life, without being subjected to the death penalty. And so I, I just, I raised holy hell Knowing the judge was not, knowing the judge wasn't going to listen to me. Right, and he doesn't. Right, and he sends him home, and and of course they come back on Monday after spending the weekend at home, and 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 they convict. Um, quickly, quickly convict on Monday, as you predicted, um, when he sent them home. But they recommend life, um, and 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 the law back then said it didn't matter what they recommend; the judge could do whatever he wants. And and were you surprised that the judge over overruled them? Oh yeah, no, yeah. I'm surprised that he he did not uh, reprimand them, <laughs> right? You know, or, or you know, threaten it, or issue a rule of show cause. Oh, we knew. I mean, really, he was more uh, he was more committed to convicting my client than the prosecutor. I mean, obviously, these are horrible facts, uh, and I mean, all you need to do is just deal with the children. The children are totally innocent. There's no reason why these children should have been killed. And then you add that to a woman who's pregnant. Now, and then the husband, the boyfriend, that's a totally different, you know, people can understand a, a, a love triangle, somebody kills them, you gotta do time, but maybe not the death penalty. So yes, I we all expected the death penalty, but I felt comfortable, but not certain that we had protected the record sufficiently to reverse the conviction. Now, before we get to your road to the Supreme Court of Florida, I want to talk for a second about the death penalty because back then it wasn't lethal injection. It was Old Sparky. And people may not remember Old Sparky, but Old Sparky was an electric chair that they strapped you to. And I think it was Bob Butterworth who famously said, you know, people may think twice because Old Sparky doesn't always work. That's and, correct. And so, so I mean, that must have been weighing on everybody's mind. Yeah, that, that was weighing, yeah. Uh, on expect more so his family than him, the family more than the client. Uh, and by the way, uh, obviously during the course of the uh, 
the sentencing, you know, I, I actually use those words. I don't have a copy of the transcript. I don't know if you saw a copy of the transcript. I used I had a copy of the transcript for years. Uh, one of the hurricanes uh, destroyed part of my roof, mm. and I lost a lot of my old files. Because this was like 20, maybe 20 banking boxes of files, and most of them got destroyed. What words did you use in closing? Uh, basically, you know, obviously I talked about uh, punishment fitting the crime. And I put, you know, even those of you who believe in eye for an eye, my client didn't take anybody's eye. Yes, if, you know, if, if he's guilty of uh, being, being uh, 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 available to assist with what he thought was going to be retribution of the co-defendant with, with his wife's boyfriend that got out of hand, Yes, but that's not murder. And and basically, uh, you know, I talked about, you know, one day you're going to talk to your grandkids about this. And uh, they're going to ask you whether you whether, whether you uh, did your duty or whether you succumbed to the mob. So because clearly everybody knows what the mob wants. Uh, but mob justice is not justice. It's an oxymoron. And, you know, we selected you. And you told us, you gave us a pledge that you would, uh, that you would follow the law, and that even if you found my client guilty in the sentencing phase, if you believe that he should not die, irrespective of what your family or friends felt, that you would do your duty. We believed you then, and I look in your eyes right now. We believe you now. Wow. I, I get goosebumps listening to it. It reminds me, I, I, when I was a young intern in the uh, Metro Justice Building, I watched Cy Gare give a closing in the uh, tourist robbery murder case. And um, he talked about succumbing to the mob, too. You remember Cy Gare? He was wonderful uh, with, with jurors. I tried a case with Cy. I tried a big drug case with Cy. This is one of those cases. And both of our clients, a big drug case, both of our clients were acquitted, but the funny part was <laughs> Sad Gear gave one theory in opening and a totally different theory in closing. <laughs> and I thought it was going to take down both of our clinics, but it didn't. And our clinics were acquitted. He no. had no file. He had a little book about about four inches tall, and a little small book, and everything was in that little book. He, I took depots. He took no depots. He wasn't present during the depots. But he did a great job in cross-examining. One of the most passionate, powerful closing arguments that I've, I've had. Well, you charged twenty-five grand in that case. I think he he was famously known for charging five hundred dollars a case, no matter what the case, and he would just show up at trial. But so so you you end up going to the uh, to the Supreme Court and and arguing to the Supreme Court that the judge committed error by letting the jurors go home to their families during deliberations and. You know, I'm amazed because you're right, of course, but I'm amazed that the Supreme Court reversed, unanimously reversed the conviction, ordered a new trial. Because in these murder cases, especially grisly murder cases, the the courts of appeals are so likely just to turn their blind eye to uh, when judges commit errors. So to me, the fact that you were able to take this all the way up and convince the Florida Supreme Court is an amazing thing, H.T., 
Well, there's one other factor in terms of the degree of difficulty. No Florida court had ever held to that date that it was error for a court to allow a jury to go home once they start deliberating. We take it for granted now because, but that was the, that was the similar case. But what I did two things. Well, I did one dumb thing. The dumb thing I did was to handle the appeal alone. I was not an appellate lawyer, but I knew the family didn't have it, the money. And I'd been to death row and to visit my client and I could not sleep, uh, honestly. Now I was sleeping, but I, I, I did not sleep well from the time he was convicted until the time that the Supreme Court reversed. And so I said, look, if HT, you're not a great appellate lawyer, but you're committed and, and you, you, you know you're not gonna be out work. It's 24 hours in a day. The other side is not gonna work 24 hours. You are, you hold on to this. And what I did was I, I, I felt in my heart that this was wrong. So I went and checked other states and I found the case in California. You know, all the cases in California start with people versus, you know, <laughs> right. state versus people versus the case in California. And from that case in California, I started finding cases around the country that that you could tell the courts were were inching toward that that decision. But I felt, as you did, that the courts in these states like Indiana and places like that didn't because the crime was so grisly. So the, the good thing I did was the following. I did not thought was the issue formation for the, for the court. I did not say whether it was error for a trial judge to allow a, a jury who had started deliberation to go home. I said whether it was error for a trial judge to allow a jury to go home in a first degree murder case. <laughs> I see. That was the key, the first degree murder part of it. Right. That limited because otherwise a lot of cases would have been reversed. Sure. By, sure. by limiting that, I felt if the court had the guts to follow the law in this in this horrendous case, that would help. I never expected a unanimous verdict. And you got a you, unanimous decision. You got a lot of heat. Um, in the media and from your hanging judge when you came back for trial number two, because they were mad at you for, for getting a technicality. They kept using the word technicality, technicality. Now, of course, you know, what we believe is a constitutional issue and an important issue and fairness, they call technicality. Well, I think that my client did not kill anybody. And they say he's guilty of murder when he didn't shoot anybody and didn't pour gasoline. That's a technicality. The law is nothing but technicality. One point I want to make, David, is from the day I argued the case until the decision was 17 months. The, now, I spent a year, in, well, 400 days in Vietnam. That 17 months was just as long. Wow. And every day, I was, my secretary, hey, we got the mail, you got the mail? So she, after a while, she just she would just say, "Mr. Smith, I have the mail. Here it is." 
Because because by the way, back then you would find out the decision through the mail. You wouldn't get you wouldn't get an email. You got no, no it in email. the mail. There was no email. And I, I never forget, I opened that decision. I opened it up, I put it, I went in my uh library by myself. I opened it up, I took off my jacket. I, I have not read it yet. I sat it down and I prayed. And um, I went straight to the back. And it said reverse and remanded. And boy, it's like I came back fully alive. That's what the best night's sleep I had <laughs> had like in two years. And, you know, I just want to focus on that for one second, HT, because as a criminal defense lawyer, the losses really stick with us. And it's the reason we have gray hair and the reason we lose sleep and everything else. The wins, we we move on to the next case too quickly. We don't save them, but the losses just eat away at us. I found out that I am motivated more by not wanting to lose than I am the joy of winning. Uh, and... And I'm sure that most good lawyers would agree that I learn a lot more from the cases that I lose. I try not to lose a lot of them, and I've, I've been blessed. I was blessed in the public defender's office with just great mentors, Bill Hubbard, Roy Black, Jack DeNiro, Steve, uh, just uh, Bill Clay, just on and on and on, great lawyers to mentor me. And then I, and I got good cases, and and uh, we got good results. But that fear of losing, we're, we're wired all weird. Uh, you know, most people aren't wired like that, but we, yeah. we, ha- we have uh, th- this weird wire. I guess that's why we end up as, as criminal defense lawyers. But there, there's nothing worse, I think, as a criminal defense lawyer than having to try a case twice. It, it's terrible. Well, and, and, and you hadn't been paid enough to try it twice. And here you are. You've gone to the Supreme Court and now you got to go try it again. What I did not tell you was I got my first good night's sleep that night. And I mean, I slept like a baby. I woke up and I forgot how good a good night's sleep make you feel. Right. And I drove to the office and I sat down and I began just pull the file out. And I, I wanted to call the family and tell them I'm coming out there because I wanted to, I knew they had a thousand questions. And then I said, oh my goodness, I gotta try this case again. <laughs> I gotta be threatened again. I gotta have the heart palpitations again. Now they know about Patsy Roebuck and all of that. So I don't have that. So uh, I had one real good night's sleep. <laughs> and that was now it. Now I tried again by myself with no more money. So you try it again. We, we get the same verdict this time, the same recommendation for life. And the judge again uh, overturns the verdict and says death. So how, how do you end up getting him life? I just checked the Department of Corrections. He's still alive. Oh, yeah. He's still in jail. Yeah, absolutely. He's still alive. He's still in jail. I don't know whether anyone yet who got the 25 mandatory minimum for life has gotten out. Mm. Uh, so now this is 30 some years. No. So what happened? Well, first of all, number one, uh, I tried this case the second time much better than the first time. And I did a, a pretty good job. By the way, they changed, they, they changed prosecutors. Uh, Robert Carney, who, who was a judge. I, don't, I haven't been up to Broward, uh, but he was a judge in Broward after that. I wonder if he wore the handcuff tie tie. tie. No, a, <laughs> a, a ethical, professional gentleman and a fantastic lawyer. We became the first lawyer and I, we never spoke after the trial 
because he did every unethical, unprofessional thing you can do. He just wanted to win. Carney and I became friends after the, the trial and, and great respect. I'll never forget because Carney was the like the, the number one uh, prosecutor for, of homicide cases in the time. And I'll never forget because everybody in the courtroom was against me. And so I'll never forget, I gave my opening statement in the second trial and nobody would speak to me. I mean, the clerk, the vet, nobody. And somehow I was in the courtroom with the, with the BSO guy. He said, excuse, excuse me, can I interrupt you for a moment? No, you know, writing, working on something. He said, yeah. He said, man, I am so proud of you. He said, Connie is the top dog and he's always prouncing around the courtroom like a, like a peacock. He never had his ass handed to him like that before. <laughs> That's always been the difficult part about being a criminal defense lawyer. You could kick the other side's ass and still lose. Let's hear what happens next. In the next segment, you're going to hear H.T. Smith talk about what it's like to save a person's life. And being a criminal defense lawyer, when you get a not guilty verdict, in a way you are saving a person's life. It's almost like being a cancer doctor, being a criminal defense lawyer, when people come to you, um, they're so vulnerable, they're so upset, obviously, their life is on the brink. And fighting all the way to the end, getting that not guilty verdict is something else. HT didn't get a not guilty verdict here, but he saved someone from the ultimate punishment. And you'll hear how that affected him and how he felt about it in the next segment of For the Defense. So how did you end up getting him life after the judge uh, says he's going to give him death again? After the second trial, they then offered him a plea against the co-defendant and his family. Uh, you know, <laughs> just think about this now. His family sees him. They, they sit through the trial, which is just the evidence is devastating. Brutal. They're like seven or eight of them. Everybody else in the courtroom is on the other side. And 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 the victims' families are not only threatening me, they're threatening them too. They see the jury recommend life, they're elated, and the judge give death. They're down. They wait this two years or whatever it took for the appeal. They know he's on death row. He's writing to him, telling him how horrible it is and how frightened he is. We then reverse it. Now they're back up again. Now we go try it. They're being threatened. They got to go through this again. We get life from the jury again. The judge death again. So the family, not me, the family convinces him to take a plea and testify against the co-defendant. And he did. So his life is saved. And, and after this, you know, saga of all this time and two trials and all the way to the Supreme Court and, and really taking up your life for almost two years, um, you save his life. And, and, and I just want to ask you how you felt about all that um, with, with a client like this. Yeah, no, I felt it, it, it was uh, the most satisfying uh, case I've ever had. Sometimes as lawyers, and I tell my students this all the time, you, you don't have cases. You have clients. You have human beings. 
You know, they are part of the same race you are, the human race. I do not believe in a death penalty. You know, I think, for instance, if someone killed someone close to me, I think, and this is my belief, that death is perfect rest. I don't want someone that killed someone in my family to be resting perfectly. Not only that, you see people, but in Vietnam, I had some of my men, not some, that's an exaggeration, one of my men, but I heard others did it. I had one of my men plead with me to kill him because he was in so much pain. So death is an escape. Epstein, death for him was an escape. I don't want, a, I want a person to live. I want them to have a toothache and an earache and a stomachache, cancer, whatever, what else, what all the rest of us have. Living is, especially if you're in prison, is tough. So I, I, I'm not certain I saved anybody's life in the war because, you know, there's so much shooting going on, et cetera. It's not like I went out and rescued somebody, but as a, as a, a, as a commander of men, none of my men were killed. So I feel good about that. Right. I saved judge Rosemary Jones life during uh, the riot in 1982. And this is the only other life I, I can, I know I saved. So my, God gave me life and gave me a blessing to be a lawyer for the purpose of representing people like Arthur Aubrey Livingston. Because a lot of people wouldn't have represented him because he didn't have money. A lot of people wouldn't have represented him because these crime, this crime was grisly, horrendous, but he did not deserve to die. One, because I didn't, I don't believe the government should stop killing by, stop people from killing by killing people. But two, he did not take a life. He did not physically take a life. HT, so, I got to ask you, I got to ask you, because I, 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 uh, I didn't know about the 1982 life saving that you did. Tell me about that. Well, I thought, okay, yes. Uh, 1982, as a matter of fact, this was Roy Black's case. Uh, the, we had a riot in 1982 because a police officer over in a, a video arcade in Overtown. We talked to Roy about that case. Right. Killed uh, uh, a young man and a uh, riot started. And Judge Rosemary Usher Jones was a workers' compensation judge. And workers' compensation court was not in the civil courthouse. It was kind of close to Overtown. And when they uh, told all the judges and all the lawyers to vacate downtown because the riot had started. Judge Jones was headed to Carl Gables where she lived. A police officer was facing her and he yelled to her to turn left. Well, they were facing each other. He meant left the way he was facing. Uh. She turned left the way she was facing and drove down the exact street where the riot started, where the murder happened. The arcade. Someone threw a brick through her window. They went and dragged her out of the car while people pilfered the car to get whatever they could get. So a group was dragging her behind the same arcade where the shooting occurred to rape her. Two little girls saw that and went to the arcade and began banging on the door, banging on the door. Well, it's, I don't know this to be a fact, but it was reputed from some of my clients and friends who lived over town that he was involved in some illegal activity. 
and the girls were raising so much hell, he didn't want him to stop. So he opened the door and she was able to get him, get her and put her inside. She only knew one black person. I, I'm, 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 I'm serious. Rosemary Jones and I, she was the prosecutor and I was the defense lawyer, public defender in a court together uh, for maybe 18 months. I was the only black person she really knew. There were no cell phones, but she had my phone number from us working together from years. And he told her, look, you called your husband, your family, whatever, somebody, but you got to get out of here. You make one phone call, you know, just like they do in the police department when they arrest right. Yeah. And my phone rings. My law office was located in Spring Garden, which is right next to Overtown. As a matter of fact, 7th Avenue is the dividing line between Spring Garden and Overtown. So I'm not that far. And I, her voice, I mean, she you could tell she was terrorized. I wasn't thinking, but I always carried a gun at that time, by the way. I used to carry my gun to court, you know, because you didn't have to go to the metal detector. Wow. I carried it in a, a ankle holster. So I jumped in my Cadillac, and it took me about five minutes, and I was over town. And as soon as I pulled up near the arcade, my car was surrounded by a mob. And I said to myself, what the hell are you thinking? Because they they're about to get me in the Cadillac. And as fate would have it, one of my biggest, baddest, toughest clients yelled, hey, that's Lawyer Smith. That's my lawyer. Get the <laughs> F away from that car. <laughs> Boy, was I glad to see him. And sure enough, they backed away. I pulled up right next to the arcade, knocked on the door, knocked on the door. The guy opened the door a little bit and saw me. And when he opened it up, I walked in. Rosemary Jones jumped on me and hugged me so tight, I couldn't breathe. And she had, I'm five, six, she's maybe five feet, five, one. Neither one of her feet were on the floor. It's for about three minutes and I'm telling her I can't breathe. I, I mean, I was like, <laughs> I was the George Ford of 1982. Uh, I was telling her I can't breathe, I can't breathe. So finally he helped pry her arms away. And by the time he pried her arms away, we could hear police cars coming. Wow. Police what came a story. up in, grabbed her, took her and stuffed her that uh by the uh in the front where the passenger side of the car is, stuffed her down and left me. <laughs> no way. Oh, well, I'm a black guy. Uh, all the black people are bad. He they left me. Took her to the fire station located on 18th Street and about northeast 2nd Avenue, right across from the old. Miami grave, Miami cemetery, where a lot of the, you know, the old timers of Miami are buried. And somehow, I don't remember right now, I found out where she was. And I went there and she, you know, she was so appreciative. And- uh, What a story, everybody. And I told her, no, that's not the end of the story. I said, look, whatever you do, you gotta promise me two things. One, you say I saved your life, those little girls saved your life. Right. You got to do something for those little girls. And sure enough, she established two scholarships and both of them went to college. Second, you cannot tell a soul this because the kind of people who riot don't rationalize and say, you know, as far as they're concerned, you either on our side or you're on their side. You came and took that white woman away from here. So you with them. And so you can't tell anybody. But anyway, 
without telling me years later, she wrote an article. Have I sent you the article? No, I got to see I this. See you the, I, I'm, I'm, she wrote an article uh, behind my back. Richard Cole was president of the Dade County Bar Association. Evidently, she told him and he allowed her to use his column to write the article. When I first saw it, I was furious. And then I realized, brothers in the hood do not read the Dade County Bar Association bulletin. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, then, and some years after that, uh, she passed away. So her life, I had, I had a hand in it with those two girls. But this young man's life, I saved his life myself. And so my life was worth living. It was, I can say that, you know, God blessed me to be born, blessed me to be in the first class of black lawyers, blessed me to be the first black public defender at a golden era for the public defender's office. And I repaid that by saving the life of Arthur Aubrey Livingston. HT, you know, I, uh, I see every email that you sign off with is life is good. And I see it over your right shoulder. Now life is good. And hearing you talk just reminds me why that's such a great sign off for you. And what's a great saying for you, because you truly believe it in your heart. Yeah. Well, you just start with my birth. My mother was a beautician who worked at uh, the Eden Rock Hotel, which is located right next door to the Fountain Blue. And she worked up until just before it was time to deliver me and went into labor at work. As you know, Mount Sinai Hospital is located on Miami Beach, but colored people could not be admitted there. And so she almost she almost died and almost lost me because she had to then get in a car herself and drive, because my father didn't have time to get to her, drive from Miami Beach over the bridge to Overtown. And so, uh, you know, we made it, we just, both of us just made it. So that's number one. Number two, and I have a lot of stories, but let me just tell you another story. My youngest brother went to Vietnam in 1967, 66, 67. He came back alive. My middle brother went to Vietnam, 67, 68. He came back alive. I arrived in Vietnam in 69 because they, there was a lot a, not a law, but a policy. You can't send two brothers to Vietnam without the consent of the parents. And my parents wouldn't consent. So when I got there the first day, I said, what's the chances of three brothers from the same family all going to Vietnam and all coming back alive? And I'm it. And unlike my brothers, they sent me to the northernmost part of South Vietnam where I could literally, and I'm not exaggerating, literally walk to North Vietnam, which is the most dangerous place. So, and I came back, that's number two. Number three, once I came back, I learned that the University of Miami uh, was admitting its first class of black law students. And I had decided that I wasn't gonna be told no again. You know, I came back and I thought I was gonna be accepted as equal to whites because I had risked my life for the country. My daddy had risked his life for the country. My other two brothers husbands, and to most white people, I was just another N-word. And so when I heard they were admitting blacks, I went out and I spent maybe 11 hours uh, and I had not taken the LSAT and I told the dean, they didn't give no damn LSAT in the jungles of Vietnam. They gave it here to the draft dodgers. And when law school started, 
I was going to be in the first class, in the first row, in the first seat. And once I got out of jail, you can be assured I'll be right back there. So you need to deal, do something. And he told me, well, I can't do anything. I said, well, you're a computer then. You know, you, 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 you're nothing but a, a computer. You know, because if you were a human being, you would see these extraordinary circumstances. And after 11 hours, the dean signed a, a letter uh, saying that I would be admitted, conditioned upon taking them and passing the next LSAT. Life is good. No other person in the history, except uh, University of Miami history, ever got in law school like that. Life, Life is good. good. Life is good, HT. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you. This has been an awesome, awesome interview and really eye-opening. And I just want to uh, thank you for talking to me. One last question before I sign off that just occurred to me. It's, you know, we spoke to Roy about, about that case, about the riots in 82 and about representing that police officer. I think you his name was Lozano. It, Lozano. No, that, that, one, that one was Alvarez, the, the Alvarez, Alvarez. Uh, Alvarez, yes, Alvarez case. And he represented Officer Alvarez. You guys were at the public defender's office um, and fighting for the downtrodden. And, and, and he comes out and represents the police officer. How did, how did you feel about your colleague representing one of those police officers? I felt, I felt that Roy Black represented the true uh, tradition of what a good trial lawyer does. And, and especially with the mob against you. You know, just think about all the black people who were lynched and were taken, were taken out of the jail and lynched the mob because the mob, we, defense lawyers, we are a big part of why this democracy works. I was so proud of Roy to do that. And let me tell you, his client was convicted the first time because of the mob. Roy's trial of that case was magnificent. I'll never forget, he started off with the, with the radio transmission from, and honestly, it was like chaos. I mean, when I heard that, I said, first of all, it was brilliant. But I saw the trial. And obviously, the uh, prosecutor, Don Horn, did a very good job. But trust me, had this not been a, the, a situation with the mob, the jury, the jury was afraid if they had acquitted, uh, had, had acquitted, that there would be another right. And so that's why, in my judgment, Roy lost the case. Yeah, you know, I represented a guy in the Ku Klux Klan. His last name was Cole. I remember it just like it was yesterday. That's what we, that, look, that's what we do. That's who we are. You, look, today, getting here in time to, to do this, I was speeding. I don't have to turn myself in. The government has to find out that I did it and prove it. And unless they find out I did it and prove it, then I'm, in, I'm innocent. And everybody in America is. Our job is to hold the government's feet to its fire, to the fire. And that's what makes democracy and that's what makes it work. And those who are true criminal defense lawyers, and I like the fact that you didn't call me a criminal lawyer, because a criminal lawyer is a lawyer who's a criminal. A criminal defense lawyer will, will represent people and hold the government's feet to its fire, no matter what the mob says, no matter what the media says, no matter what social media says, no matter. I was public enemy number one for several years after that case. And then I was, I was absolved for a while. And then I led the boycott of Miami's tourism industry and I became public enemy 
number one again. And you know what? It's not a bad place to be because Martin Luther King said, in the moral universe, one is a majority if you're right. I love it. Thank you, HT. I really appreciate this. It was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. What a cool and interesting guy, HT Smith. He inspired me during that interview. I hope he inspired you as well. What great stories. What a storyteller. Just an amazing person. I, I really enjoyed speaking to him. Next week, I think you'll like it too. We have Effley Bailey on the show, and Effley Bailey has had so many great cases. We're going to take him all the way back to the most famous case that he's handled, the Sam Shepard case, um, who was the basis for the movie The Fugitive. And that's saying something when I say that it's one of the most famous cases. He's handled OJ and so many others. For the defense will be a lot of fun next week.